gospel, you, you change pace from time to time. We sometimes go at walking pace and then suddenly almost at running pace because things are happening so quickly. In this chapter, we adopt the running pace. The main question in this chapter, the main issue, was one of authority. In verse 28, the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? As they watched what he did, they sensed that he was saying something about himself through these actions, and yet they found it difficult to say exactly what he was saying. And the incidents recorded in this chapter really answer a question that thousands must have been asking in first century Palestine and which really people are asking today. Just as you think of the thousands of people who went to see the Passion of the Christ, part of the reason for those many people going would be that there's this question, who is Jesus Christ? It's obviously a question of great importance. If he is of no particular importance, we can just dismiss him, like any figure of history. But if his authenticity and his claims are without doubt, then we need to take notice of him and listen to him. Because frankly, there can be no one of greater importance than Jesus Christ. And so this chapter provides a number of answers to the question, who is Jesus? In the verses that you looked at last week, 1 to 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem on a colt. And that incident provided two answers. He is the Lord and he is the Saviour. The Lord to be obeyed and the Saviour to be welcomed and praised. You remember how it was the Lord who needed the colt. And as he was called the Lord, it's the word that comes from the Old Testament word translated into Greek in the New Testament, meaning Jehovah, Yahweh. And as Jesus entered, it was clear that it was part of the plan of God for the salvation of men and women. It was going to set in motion that events that through the hatred and jealousy of the leaders and their handing him over to Pilate, that Jesus was to be crucified. But Jesus knew that in God's sovereign plan, their putting him to death was going to be God's solution for the sin of men and women. For he was to die as the propitiation for our sins, the one who accepted the righteous wrath of God that our sins deserve but he accepted that judgment for us. The crowd's praise was Hosanna, but if you have a margin in your Bible, it will also tell you that Hosanna means not only praise, but save. Because he is the Lord, he can be the Saviour. But now we move to verses 12 to 33, and this passage now brings first a solemn element. Who is Jesus? He is the judge. He is the judge. He is to be reverenced and in the right sense feared. 
This stands out as with you, Jesus, going to the temple. Look in verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, the temple was intended to be a place of worship, a place where men and women could express their thanksgiving to God, a place where those who were seeking God and longed to find him could come and express their longings after him. But instead, it had become a place of extortion and a cause of stumbling to many who were genuinely seeking God. Now, to be fair, there needed to be, at that time, money changers and sellers of animal for sacrifice because you had to pay the temple taxes in just one currency. And if you bought your sacrifices at the temple, you didn't have to bring them all the way from your home to the temple. By buying your animal sacrifices in the temple, you were guaranteed that they would be regarded as acceptable. All temple taxes had to be paid in the Tyrian coinage, the Tyrian shekel being the nearest to the old Hebrew shekel. All other currencies were regarded as unclean. But by using the court of the Gentiles for this, the only place where the majority of us could have come into, by using the court of the Gentiles for this business, it was no longer a place for them to worship and to seek God. It was just a noisy market. And such is the evil in the human heart such is the greed of men that pilgrims were taken advantage of and it wasn't worship that took place in the temple but merchandise and extortion so that if you had looked to the temple you would have seen all this activity and you would have said what a remarkable thing that so many people are crowding to the temple but as you looked in the temple there wasn't the reality that the business should have indicated. Now it's important to notice that Mark's Gospel is unique in the Gospels in telling us that Jesus did not immediately cleanse the temple. Look at verse 11. First, he looked around at everything. Sometimes people have spoken as if Jesus suddenly, impetuously cleansed the temple. He didn't. He deliberately looked round first. How grieved he must have been. Can you just imagine him seeing his own people, seeing the Gentiles who were seeking God and yet being stumbled by what they found? What a disappointment. How unfruitful they were. Now he didn't spend the night in Jerusalem, Mark tells us, but verse 12, that he stayed out in Bethany. And almost certainly, he went to the home of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The following day, he did something that was really an acted parable. Verse 12 says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. 
Now it wasn't the season for fruit but it wasn't also the season for leaves. The leaves would normally give evidence of fruit. And so that fig tree was really a picture of what Jesus had found in the temple. There was all the activity, there were all the leaves, but as he went to the temple, there was no fruit to please God. A people who honoured God only with their lips were like fig trees that seemed to give evidence of fruit, but it was absent. And so he pronounced judgment on the fig tree as a symbol of what he was going to do in the temple. And he had authority to do so. As the first verses have shown us, he's the Lord, he's the Saviour, and he is also the supreme judge. The New Testament makes the quite remarkable revelation that God the Father has entrusted the responsibility of judgment to his Son. And the Lord Jesus is to be the judge of us all. And so it was with the supreme authority of the Lord, of the judge, that the Lord Jesus entered the temple that next day, overturned the tables of the money changers and those who were selling the doves and the rest, and cleansed the temple. Now because some of you may be wondering, there have been those who have suggested that this second cleansing of the temple was in fact identical with the first. In other words, that there was only one cleansing of the temple. I don't believe that's true at all. John has that cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is at the end. But as you study the, the New Testament, there's no reason for assuming that they were one and the same there are major differences in the wording and setting. And it's not at all unlikely that Jesus should have had to cleanse the temple a second time. Remember, three years have passed. You know how quickly weeds grow? You get rid of weeds, and then if you don't do anything about dealing with the root of them, you won't have to look many weeks later and the weeds will be there. And when Jesus first did that act, he was relatively unknown. But now he was well known. What a vivid picture it presents of judgment. Jesus entering the temple with great authority. Remember how the Jews reverenced the temple. Jesus cleansing it. Makes me think of El Greco's famous painting of the cleansing of the temple. While in his first coming, the Lord Jesus had not come to judge. It was inevitable that he is the Lord, the creator of all things, the supreme judge, should exercise his judgment when confronted by sin. And by such a judgment, promise was given of the judgment that is yet to come. I'm not going to dwell upon it, but as I get upset by what happens in the world as in this past week, part of my encouragement is that one day there is going to be a judgment when all the wrongs of this world will be put right. And although Jesus had come first and foremost to save his own people, he had also come to save the Gentiles. 
and the commerce that took place in the temple was in the one place where they might have found God. How did Jesus judge them? Significant that he judged them by the word of God. In verse 17 it says, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it's by God's word, what he has revealed, what you and I can know now, that the world will be judged when Jesus exercises that judgment. Now Jesus' authority to judge is stated in the New Testament, but the emphasis is not upon it. And there's a very simple reason for that. Let me quote familiar words to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But it goes on to say, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And the deeds of some of those men who observed Jesus were evil and tragically they proved the truth of what Jesus said because verse 18 says they began looking for a way to kill him. So what have we discovered so far? Who is Jesus? He is the Lord as he enters Jerusalem. He is the Saviour. They cry, Hosanna, save. He is the judge. And if we reject him, and I say this with great seriousness, he must inevitably be our judge and we will have no excuse. It's difficult to find any illustration. Privilege always brings responsibility. Let's imagine that a member of your family is desperately ill and you hear the name of a doctor who is able to prescribe a cure or to give some kind of remedy for that illness. But what if you reject or ignore that good news? Well, the very existence of that doctor means that in principle he becomes your judge. He could have helped, but you rejected him. And so it is with Jesus Christ the Saviour. He is ready and able to save completely all who come to God through him. But if we reject him and ignore him, he will be our judge. And we will be without excuse. But then there's another thing this passage says to us, who is Jesus? He is the teacher to whom we must listen. Preeminent in Jesus' ministry was his teaching. It was more important than the miracles. The miracles were almost incidental to the teaching. They showed his identity, the identity of the teacher. He was called the teacher. And if you look in verse 17, it says, he then taught them. As he taught them, he said, 
Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Verse 18 says, The whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What was the difference with Jesus' teaching from the teaching of those religious rulers? Well, he spoke with authority. They spoke from authorities. I don't know what it is to hear someone speak and they're quoting this person and quoting that and they're displaying their knowledge and I've heard someone speak without any of that and speaking very clearly, very powerfully and you know that what they say is true. And when people listen to the Lord Jesus, he spoke with authority. And the regular response to his teaching was, no one has ever spoken like this before. And the Lord Jesus then used the cursing of the fig tree, part of his teaching, to teach an important lesson. Where on the next day now, the morning after the cleansing of the temple, as they went along, verse 20 says, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. The Lord Jesus immediately sees this comment to teach Peter and the disciples the importance of faith in God. Verse 22, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. He was teaching his disciples that if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, that's me and you, if we committed ourselves to him as the Saviour and Lord, that we are to live lives of faith. We're to stand out in an unbelieving world, a world without hope, as men and women of faith and hope. And then he explained how faith in God is daily expressed. Quite a challenge. It's expressed in prayer. Verse 24, Therefore, in the light of what is just said, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Don't be puzzled about moving mountains. It comes from a rabbinic expression, that is an expression that the Jewish teachers use. Removing mountains was a symbol of removing difficulties, something big, you're faced with something that seems insuperable. And the point of the illustration is for the need for prayers to be the expression of faith. Because if we're believing what is really God's will and trusting him for it, what seems impossible can be done. Made me think of many years ago, the 25th anniversary of the Wycliffe Bible Translators it all started in a little tiny town, village, in Arkansas, USA. And there were a group of young people, for the most part, a few older ones, who felt God wanted them to go into Mexico. And Mexico was closed to the gospel. The president and his cabinet were against gospel preaching. And a group of them on that one day stopped studying, they were studying language learning, they stopped studying and they prayed that God would open the door for Mexico because God wills that all men and women should hear the gospel and have the opportunity of salvation. 
And as they got up from praying, someone who had gone into the village to get provisions for their evening meal came and said, I've just heard on the radio that the president and his cabinet have resigned. And the door was open to Mexico. And that's how the Wycliffe Bible Translators was born. Faith can remove mountains. But Jesus adds one qualification, an important condition of answered prayer. Verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Failure to forgive others as we've been forgiven is a contradiction of faith in God and in his Son. And it negates the value of our prayers. Do you remember the story the Lord Jesus told? I tell it very briefly. A servant, a steward, is setting accounts with the king and he finds that the king tells him that he owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was worth about 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a person's wage for a day. Hold that in your mind, 6,000. That is 18 and a half years of a normal salary. That's what he owed. The servant says to the king, please forgive me, I'll pay you back what I can. Falls on his knees. The king says, I forgive you the lot. Give you the lot. The servant goes out and grabs a fellow servant who owes him just a hundred denarii. Three months' salary compared with eighteen and a half years. Says, I want it all back. Throws him into prison until every bit is paid. The other servants hear it, go to the king and say to him, this is what has happened. The king calls for the first servant. You wicked servant, he says. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he handed him over to the jailer until everything had been paid. Jesus said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, if Jesus is the teacher and the Lord and the Saviour and the judge, what he teaches is mandatory. It's the way in which we must live. And if you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you're someone with L plates on and you never take them off. We're to listen to his instruction. And how important that is, isn't it possible to live a week without exercising faith in God? Isn't it possible to live a week without exercising the privilege of believing prayer? Isn't it possible to live with bitterness in your heart against someone rather than forgiveness? And you and I will never have to forgive others as much as the Lord has forgiven us. Who then is Jesus? The Lord, the Saviour, the Judge, the Teacher. Just one final thing to cap it all. He is the king whose authority comes from heaven. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, caused a commotion. The cleansing of the temple 
increased it. His teaching caused a stir. And in verse 28, the authorities come to Jesus as he was walking in the temple. They come as a kind of deputation and they say to him, who gave you authority to do this? By what authority are you doing these things? Now the Lord Jesus knew that they were scheming to put him to death. Verse 18 tells us of their plan. And he wasn't going to play into their hands. And so he replied in a way that utterly foiled them. He said, let me ask you one question first. Answer you, answer me, and if you do, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. John's baptism, when John baptised, was that something that God had told him to do? Was it from heaven? Or was it from men? Tell me. So they get in a little huddle. You can see them. What we're going to say to him? If we say it was from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why didn't you listen to John? And if we say it's from man, the crowd will be hostile to us. So they come to Jesus and say, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They were utterly foiled. They had no doubt about his authority. Ask the question though, who gave it to him? His father. Jesus is the son of God, the Lord. He is the king who had entered Jerusalem not just to teach, not just to reveal his glory, but he came to Jerusalem to go to the cross the most important thing he did for us. This table just speaks volumes to us of why he had come. He is the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me ask you this question as I draw to a close. We began by asking this key question. I hope you're asking it if you've never asked it before. Who is Jesus Christ? I could not put a more important question to you. Who is Jesus Christ? Are you accepted? With, are you satisfied with the answers that this passage, passage gives? What is your response then? Because you see, quite frankly, it is not enough to just listen. Jesus warned about that. What God wants is obedience. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord. Do we obey him? He is the Saviour. Have we welcomed him, received him into our lives? Is the only one who can cleanse us from our sins and put us right with God? Do we praise him and say, Hosanna? Do we acknowledge him to be the judge? Are we ready to meet him? For all will stand before him. He is the teacher. Do we listen to him? Do we open the scriptures day by day and seek to listen to his voice as he speaks to us through his word?
is the King. The King whom we're to live, to honour, and to own his authority. If you haven't done any of these things before, will you do them this morning? Let's pray together.